One morning, a man leaves his house to walk to the local shop for some milk and a paper. He passes an old lady and says good morning to her. But because he doesn't look round, he misses seeing her lifted up off the pavement and transported into the body of a spaceship. Uh, moving a bit further down the road, he pats a dog on the head, uh, but he doesn't keep his eye on it, He's carry, he carries on going, and uh, as it runs away, it transmutes into a green creature. He gets to the shop, he collects his milk and his paper, he pays for them, uh, but he's so focused on what he's doing that he fails to notice the huge electrodes that are stuck in the shopkeeper's head. And so he walks back to his house. Uh, There are sounds of explosions and fighting in the distance, utterly oblivious to the fact that he's in the middle of an alien invasion. Now we can laugh at that man because it seems so impossible uh, that anyone could miss something so big happening all around them. But uh, the question I want us to face up to tonight is this. Are we prepared to laugh at ourselves in the same way? Are we prepared to admit that we too may have been conducting our lives oblivious to, or perhaps only you know, vaguely or dimly aware, of something even bigger, something even bigger than an alien invasion? I'm talking here about the huge thing that God is doing through Jesus and is continuing to do through Jesus today. This is the thing that Matthew introduced us to uh, last week. And what I hope we're going to see tonight is more of that huge thing in all its fullness and scale and wonder so that we can't possibly miss it. Uh, What's more, I want uh, want us to see how this this huge thing that God is doing through Jesus uh, generates the drama that we've just had uh, read to us by Jody. uh, This drama, this conflict between those who want to serve and honour Jesus and on the one hand and uh, those who are not interested or want to kill him on the other. And my prayer as we do so is that God will reveal to us more of the main character here, Jesus himself. And as he does that, it it is going to be a challenge to us. I sincerely hope that you will go away this evening strongly challenged. Matthew is showing us here the basic shape of a response to Jesus. And uh, the question is, The question he's going to set us tonight is this. Will we respond to him with indifference, like those experts in Jerusalem, or with worship and joy, like the Magi? Will we respond to him with fear and hatred, like Herod, or with unreserved trust and obedience, like Joseph? And interestingly, it does turn out that that those last two characters... Herod and Joseph, they are very important uh, in the passage we're looking at tonight. They divide the story up into uh, alternating scenes. I'll show you how that works on the, on the handout. Uh, and this is where we're going to begin this evening, with a with story here. A story that's divided by Matthew up into five successive scenes. And we're doing this because we want to see the evidence for ourselves that something big is indeed happening to generate the events across these scenes It's something, I guess, like an underwater explosion, an an undersea earthquake, perhaps, and and with effects spreading out in all sorts of directions, all sorts of surprising directions, in fact. I can see that the first person to to feel the effect of it is Joseph. And uh, before he knew what was going on, 
It must have been a deeply unsettling experience. Uh, This young man finds his wife to be his pregnant and I guess probably at the time there was only one reasonable conclusion that he could draw. It must have been a devastating personal crisis. Then the full force hits him of what's going on. The full force of what's happening hits home and his personal crisis simply evaporates. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. And the angel says, this is, on verse, this is verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph may have thought he was living in a tragedy. It must have been some dark days for him. Now he knows he's in a much bigger drama. But let's move quickly on. In, in chapter 2, the story cuts again, cuts to Jerusalem this, this time, to King Herod. And uh, there's more evidence that something big is happening uh, behind the scenes. It seems that its effects have been felt as far away, far away in the east, and now it's causing waves in Jerusalem. Here, Herod is the king, the king of the Jews, he would have said. But look, says Matthew, Magi from the east. And they bring a problem to Herod, verse 2. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Yes, that's right. The Magi come. They come to the king of the Jews. And they ask, where is the king of the Jews? Not surprisingly, Herod is, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3, disturbed. Uh, I guess affronted and afraid. And all Jerusalem with him. On the other hand, the Magi have their problems solved. They're directed to Bethlehem and are overjoyed to find the child. But the energy pent up by that incident in Jerusalem hasn't yet fully worked itself out. It's put Jesus himself in danger. Verse 13 of chapter 2, the story cuts back to Joseph again. The Magi have just left and Joseph has tidied up and he's done the washing up, he's put the bins out, he's gone to bed. But suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. But the thing that's happening is so big that its effects still continue to be felt even after their escape. Now violently, we cut back to Herod again. He has, at this point, literally been made to look a fool by the Magi and he still still fears the child that they were looking for. And so he has murdered every child in Bethlehem, two years old or under just to make sure. But here's the thing, not even such reckless violence can check the huge thing that's happening behind all this. It's so big that a a mere client king like Herod cannot stand in its way. In verse 19, we cut back to Joseph again. The situation has moved on. Time has passed and Herod is dead. So says Matthew, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Beginning to see a little bit of a pattern emerging here. And the angel sends them back to the land of Israel. But even that's not the end of it. This event is so big that it's hardly even begun yet. And the dangers aren't over yet either. There remains the danger of hostility from Herod's brutal son, the tyrant Archelaus. And so Joseph has one last dream. And that's how the family end up settling in Nazareth, where Jesus can grow up untroubled until he's finally ready to fulfill the purpose for which he has come. So what is it then, according to Matthew, that's causing all this drama, all these ways? 
But now lot's going on here, isn't it? So people are being moved to travel great distances. They're even being moved to violence and murder. Uh, we've had a brief look at the, the main drama here. Uh, what we need to do now is focus down on some of the details, and especially to focus down on some of the people here, the characters in this story, starting, of course, with the main character, Jesus himself. What is it that's causing all this drama? Or rather, who is it who's causing all this drama? Because the answer would seem to be this one person, Jesus. The child born to Mary, which is, when you stop to think of it, a really strange thing. Because he's only a child here. And he's entirely passive through everything that we've read in this story. He doesn't actually do anything. Why then is he so important? Well, the clue is in the name. Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is salvation. The Lord God is salvation. Verse 21 of chapter 1, the angel says to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Now last week you may remember that Matthew introducing Jesus coming into the, into the world after the sin, after the rebellion of the nation of Israel had led them into exile in Babylon. Now what of course that nation then needs after the exile is to be saved from that sin. But it's worth remembering too that once they were in exile, um, they were pretty much indistinguishable from the nations around them. They were back down, they'd sunk back down to the level of the nations around them. In other words, whatever or whoever saves the nation of Israel could also potentially, we may say at this point, save the rest of the world. Anyway, it's this salvation from sins that the nation has been waiting for. And in Jesus, the angel is saying, this is the moment. This is the one. And that's why this is such a big deal. He will save his people from their sins. Looking forward, it's hard to overstate the importance of that in Matthew's Gospel. This is the Lord declaring Jesus' purpose in coming into the world. And not surprisingly, we find Jesus himself expanding on it as the gospel story unfolds. He has come, he tells us, this is chapter 9, to call sinners. He has come, chapter 20, to give his life as a ransom for many. His blood shed, chapter 26, for the forgiveness of sins. But Matthew just doesn't want us just to look forward at this point. He also wants to look, us to look back at this point. He wants us to look deep back into the, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, and see this as, as part of a, a much bigger drama. He wants us to see patterns back there uh, that are repeated in the drama here. He wants us to see that this is not an unexpected chance event. This is pre-planned. It is in fulfillment of the will of God spoken through the prophets. Uh, hence the... Uh, very striking five scripture quotations here. There's one for each of the scenes that we've been looking at. Four of them being Matthew's own comments. And uh, you'll see they all begin with the same kind of formula. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Something like that. 
Four of them being like that, and then one of them coming from the lips of the experts in Jerusalem. And we could spend much time looking at each one of these quotations. But what they basically do is to take us back to promises made by the Lord that have at this point not yet been fully realized or fulfilled. And so just going through them in turn, Jesus has come, this is chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and quoting from Isaiah 7, Jesus has come to be God with us in a way he has never been before. He has come, this is chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, quoting now from Micah, chapter 5. He has come to be the shepherd of God's people. He has come, chapter 2, verse 15, quoting from Hosea, chapter 11 this time, to be God's son in a way that Israel have failed to be. He has come, verses 17 and 18, building from that verse in Jeremiah, chapter 31, to bring comfort to those in mourning, to remember their sins no more. Now, the last quotation, this is chapter 2, verse 23, is perhaps the, the hardest to pin down. Uh, but it may, I think, be the most important one here. Jesus has come as a Nazarene. There are lots of ideas about what that might mean. But it may be one of Matthew's first hints that Jesus has come as the humble servant of the Lord. That is, the one who will be despised by those he has come to serve, uh, much as people have seemed to have despised the Nazarenes at this time. It may even be that Isaiah uh, chapter 49 verse 6, under one translation at least, um, that the servant of the Lord will be a Nazarene. I hope you see, well, the the sort of thing that Matthew is doing here, um, um, when you're taking a photograph of a a large object, uh, a rock formation perhaps, it doesn't sound very exciting, but you want to make it exciting, um, it's sometimes hard to convey the, the size of it, the scale of it, isn't it? And so I guess what you try and do is you try and use little details, human figures perhaps, to give, you, give the photograph a sense of scale. I hope you can see Matthew doing something like that here, carefully placed little details, which show us the sheer scale of the huge thing uh, that's happening in Jesus. Matthew is very intrusive as an author here. He's interrupting the story continuously, again and again, desperately wanting us to know that in the coming of Jesus, something huge, something earth-shattering is going on. Nothing short of the salvation from sins. He will save his people from their sins. So I hope you're beginning to see just how important it is, how we respond to what's being described here. And there are two big ways in which Matthew helps us with that. Uh, The first of them is going to help us to respond with a greater joy. And the second will help us to respond with a greater trust and obedience. So first then, says Matthew, respond with a greater joy. And the device which will help us here is a minor character contrast that happens in this story. It's a character contrast which Matthew draws between uh, the religious experts in Jerusalem on the one hand and the Magi from the east on the other Now, you can see the experts there in chapter 2 and verse 3. When King Herod heard what the Magi said, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, that's the experts, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And 
in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied. And that's actually pretty much all Matthew says about them, apart from that reference to the prophet Micah they've come up with. I guess it's more what Matthew doesn't say here uh, that matters. Now, we need to remember what was going on here. So a group of Gentiles, a group of what, what we might call funny foreigners, have turned up in Jerusalem, no less, attracted by a light, wanting to honour a king. Now, the experts at this point should have known what was going on. That should have reminded them instantly of the promises, for example, at the end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 60, for instance. Where nations are drawn to a light in Jerusalem and they're drawn bringing tribute and praise. And uh, we can see it's not as if these experts don't know their Bibles. And yet, what do they do? (laughs) Matthew tells us they do nothing. Bethlehem's just only, only just down the road. Quite a short walk. But are they even curious? It seems that these respectable establishment men just can't be bothered. Matthew portrays them as cold and unresponsive to the huge thing that God is doing through Jesus. Now, it's fairly easy to point the finger here and to point the finger at those who are similarly indifferent to what God is continuing to do through Jesus today. Uh, The people who come to my mind first, I think, are, are are the biblical scholars. Many of those, of course, know the Bible well too. It's their job after all. Precious few of them, uh, in this country at least, precious few of them have any interest in Jesus himself. It's a deeply tragic thing, both for them personally, of course, and for the the Christians they should be serving with their scholarship. I dare say we could find many other similar instances of people more interested in a formality of religion and their place within it uh, than in Jesus himself. But the thing which grieves me most about this portrait is what it exposes in my own heart. You see, I guess that, you know, I too know the Bible fairly well. Not as well as I would like, but fairly well. Many of you out there would be in a similar position. But I do wonder, am I as emotionally gripped by what God is doing here as I should be? When I was doing research in Sydney a little while ago, I had the, the great privilege of sitting at a desk next to uh, someone called Alfred Olwer. Now, Alfred is the, the dean of a divinity school in Uganda, and he was, he was in Sydney uh, studying for a PhD. And I don't think I've ever met anyone quite so warm and passionate and overflowing and exuberant in his love for Jesus and the lost, and who indeed told such funny stories. But I do think that um, Sydney was quite a shock for him. Uh, Sydney evangelicalism and Sydney Anglicanism was quite a shock for him. It just seemed to him a little, well, restrained. Thoroughly correct and orthodox, certainly. But often lacking in heartfelt conviction. I suspect that that's a problem for me too. Well, the people in Matthew chapter 2 who really show people like me up but also show us which direction to go are the magi in this account. Now, the first thing to say here is that we must quickly forget all those images and ideas we may have picked up from watching uh, nativity plays over the years. These are not kings. Okay, get that straight. These are not 
kings. It's also not quite right to call them wise men. They are magi. The words used elsewhere in the Bible of magicians. They are um, manipulators of the underworld. These are people who play around with the occult. We may perhaps concede that that these particular ones were court magicians with with some sort of advisory capacity, royal advisory capacity perhaps. But nonetheless, they are magicians. They are astrologers. They are idolaters. They are, in fact, the sort of people despised and ridiculed at great length in the books of Exodus and Daniel. But here's the striking thing. It's these pagan idolaters, these funny foreigners who show up the stuffy experts in Jerusalem. These are people who have been humbled. And here they come bringing honour and tribute. These are people who have been motivated to do something. They've been motivated to travel huge distances uh, with expensive gifts. And when they finally find the child that they're looking for, they give the model response. Verse 10 in the originals, much more exuberant than our translations suggest, something like this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced greatly with great joy. I wouldn't be surprised if they danced at this point. When they entered the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they open their treasure boxes and they give everything that they've got and they give extravagantly. And they leave under God's favour, guided in a dream, just like Joseph has been. Now it's interesting here, isn't it? We might have wondered when we heard that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, just who that included. His people. Who who is that exactly? Is this just the nation of Israel? Is this this just a, a Jewish affair? But Matthew seems to be implying very early on in his gospel, no, this is much bigger than that. Gentiles, the nations, have been attracted by a light. God's promises for the whole world are in view here. And that, of course, is something of an invitation for us. Because in this context, we're the funny foreigners. I don't know whether you've ever thought of yourself like that. But we are the funny foreigners. And we are being invited to participate in the joy of these magi. Remember, to the proud and lazy, Matthew has very little to say. But to those who respond with humility and determination, like these magi, he has much to say. But finally, Matthew also wants us to respond with the greater trust and obedience. And the device he uses now is the major character contrast here. And that's the character contrast that Matthew draws between Herod on the one hand and Joseph on the other. Herod, the wicked king. Joseph, the righteous husband. Now take Herod first. Herod was uh, what was called a a client king of Judea. He actually wasn't crowned in Judea at all. He was crowned in Rome. Uh, That tells you something. Crowned in Rome in 40 BC. And uh, Matthew portrays him here in a very bad light, as you can see. Uh, But also fairly hapless. He's in the dark all the time, isn't he? He's having to search for answers from his experts, for example. 
He is also a deeply troubled man. He is full of turmoil and anger, and presumably fearful for his position. What's more, he disbelieves what is being told by the Magi and the experts. At least, he disbelieves the full import of it. In fact, whatever he believes, he's being profoundly irrational here. If the Magi are wrong, he's, he's got nothing to worry about, has he? On the other hand, if they're right, what he does is remarkably stupid, acting defiantly towards God with violence and hatred. Uh, but that's where his instincts take him. And Matthew's going to go on in the Gospel to say that that is a very common instinct, a common reaction uh, to God's Son. But in contrast to Herod stands Joseph. Unlike Herod, Joseph does, in fact, have an authentic royal background. He is a son of David, the angel has said. Unlike Herod, flailing around in the dark, he's been brought into the light, into the loop. He's been told by the Lord directly what's going on here. But most importantly, unlike Herod, he believes what he hears and he acts obediently towards the Lord his God. Even before his first encounter with the angel of the Lord, Matthew describes Joseph carefully trying to do the right thing. Thereafter, in fact, he is utterly meticulous in doing the right thing. Just take a look again with me. So chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph, son of David, says the angel, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. So what does he do? Verse 24. The moment he got up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Poor Mary, hardly time to do her hair. Eventually she gives birth. You are to give him the name Jesus, said the angel. Look at verse 21. He gave him the name Jesus. Now look at chapter 2, verse 13. Get up, says the angel of the Lord. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. So what does he do? It's the same again, isn't it? Verse 14, he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Now, I can't imagine what kind of conversation they must have had in the middle of the night. I wonder if Mary say at this point, Joseph, do you know what time it is? What are you thinking? What about the business? What about the mortgage? I can't live in, I can't live in Egypt. What are you suggesting? Do you know what they're like there? Awkward, funny. What about the schools? Have you checked the Ofsted on this? Oh, come on, can't we at least wait till the morning and talk about this? Trust me, says Joseph. Grab what you can. We're going. And we're going right now. Then when they've been in Egypt a little while, made some friends perhaps, settled down a little, here they go again. Verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. So what does he do? Next verse. Same language, same words. He got up, he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. He is, in short, especially when we compare him to Herod, and as Matthew himself puts it in chapter 1, verse 19, a righteous man, a trusting and obedient man. Now, I know there may well be some uh, resistance to all this out there, just as there is in my heart right now. You might well be thinking something like this at this point. Well, you know, it's fine for him. It was, it was fine for, for Joseph if I had an angel of the Lord appearing to me and telling me what to do. 
Well, of course, I'd get up and do it right away too. Well, I may not be an angel of the Lord. I hope you can see that. But I am a messenger of the gospel. And I can tell you that the revelation of Jesus that we have here, even in this gospel of Matthew, uh, is every bit as sure and trustworthy as that which Joseph heard direct from, from the angel. Every bit as trustworthy and true. And uh, just as there was a, a call from the angel to Joseph to do certain things, so there is a call within this gospel for us to respond. And the call for everyone here from this gospel is to dedicate our lives to Jesus as Joseph did and do everything we can to serve what he's doing in the world. So this then is the, the challenge as we finish. It's not just about the joy of the Magi. It's also about Joseph. It's about the careful seriousness of Joseph, the trust and obedience of Joseph. Let me say it once more. To the proud and lazy, Matthew has very, very little to say. But to the humble and determined, he has much to say. And what he says here is, rejoice greatly with great joy. Dance for joy that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Dance for joy that you, a funny foreigner like these magi, can be a part of it. And then be serious. Look at Joseph. Trust and believe. Believe unreservedly what you are being told by the Lord about this momentous event in history whose effects are still being felt in all the world. And then respond unreservedly with everything that you have and everything that you are. Like Joseph, do everything you can to support and serve the momentous thing Jesus came to do and is still doing, whatever the personal cost. Let's pray together.